out that they uh, they all passed through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them. And that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them. Their bodies were scattered all over the desert. Now these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. Do not be idolaters, as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in pagan revelry. We should not commit sexual immorality, as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 of them died. We should not test the Lord, as some of them did, and were killed by snakes. And do not grumble as some of them did and were killed by the destroying angel. These things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the fulfillment of the ages has come. So if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. No temptation has seized you except what is common to man. And God is faithful He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. Today's reading is from the book of Exodus, chapter 15, verse 22, to chapter 17, verse 7. Then Moses led Israel from the Red Sea, and they went into the desert to Shur. For three days they traveled in the desert without finding water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink its water because it was bitter. That is why the place is called Marah. So the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What are we to drink? Then Moses cried out to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a piece of wood. He threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. There the Lord made a decree and a law for them, and there he tested them. He said, If you listen carefully to the voice of the Lord your God... And do what is right in his eyes. If you pay attention to his commands and keep all his decrees, I will not bring on you any of the diseases I brought on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord who heals you. Then they came to Elam, where there were twelve springs and seventy palm trees, and they camped there near the water. The whole Israelite community set out from Elam and came to the desert of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai, on the fifteenth day of the second month after they had come out of Egypt. In the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The Israelites said to them, If only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat round pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted. But you have brought us out into this desert to starve this entire assembly to death. Then the Lord said to Moses, I will rain down bread from heaven for you. The people are to go out each day and gather enough for that day. In this way, I will test them and see whether they will follow my instructions. On the sixth day, they are to prepare what they bring in, and that is to be twice as much as they gather on the other days. So Moses and Aaron said to all the Israelites, In the evening you will know that it was the Lord who brought you out of Egypt. And in the morning you will see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your grumbling against him. 
Who are we that you should grumble against us? Moses also said, You will know that it was the Lord when he gives you meat to eat in the evening and all the bread you want in the morning, because he has heard your grumbling against him. Who are we? You are not grumbling against us, but against the Lord. Then Moses told Aaron, Say to the entire Israelite community, Come before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling. While Aaron was speaking to the whole Israelite community, they looked towards the desert, and there was the glory of the Lord appearing in the cloud. The Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the Israelites. Tell them, at twilight you will eat meat, and in the morning you will be filled with bread. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God. That evening, quail came and covered the camp, and in the morning there was a layer of dew around the camp. When the dew was gone, thin flakes like frost on the ground appeared on the desert floor. When the Israelites saw it, they said to each other, What is it? For they did not know what it was. Moses said to them, It is the bread the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Each one of you is to gather as much as he needs. Take an omer for each person you have in your tent. The Israelites did as they were told. Some gathered much, some little. And when they measured it by the omer, he who gathered much did not have too much, and he who gathered little did not have too little. Each one gathered as much as he needed. Then Moses said to them, No one is to keep any of it until morning. However, some of them paid no attention to Moses. They kept part of it until morning, but it was full of maggots and began to smell. So Moses was angry with them. Each morning, everyone gathered as much as he needed, and when the sun grew hot, it melted away. On the sixth day, they gathered twice as much, two omers for each person, and the leaders of the community came and reported this to Moses. He said to them, This is what the Lord commanded. Tomorrow is to be a day of rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. So bake what you want to bake and boil what you want to boil. So whatever is left and keep it until morning. So they saved it until morning, as Moses commanded, and it did not stink or get maggots in it. Eat it today, Moses said, because today is a Sabbath to the Lord. You will not find any of it on the ground today. Six days you are to gather it, but on the seventh day, the Sabbath, there will not be any. Nevertheless, some of the people went out on the seventh day to gather it, but they found none. Then the Lord said to Moses, How long will you refuse to keep my commands and my instructions? Bear in mind that the Lord has given you the Sabbath. That is why on the sixth day he gives you bread for two days. Everyone is here to stay where he is on the seventh day. No one is to go out. So the people rested on the seventh day. The people of Israel called the bread manna. It was, it was white like coriander seed and tasted like wafers made with honey. Moses said, This is what the Lord has commanded. Take an omer of manna and keep it for the generations to come, so they can see the bread I gave you to eat in the desert when I brought you out of Egypt. So Moses said to Aaron, Take a jar and put an omer of manna in it, then place it before the Lord to be kept for the generations to come. As the Lord commanded Moses, Aaron put the manna in front of the testimony that it might be kept. 
The Israelites ate manna for 40 years until they came to a land that was settled. They ate manna until they reached the border of Canaan, an omer as one-tenth of an ephah. The whole Israelite community set out for the desert of Sin, traveling from place to place as the Lord commanded. They camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. So they quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. Moses replied, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you put the Lord to the test? But the people were thirsty for water there, and they grumbled against Moses. They said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to make us and our children and livestock die of thirst? Then Moses said, cried out to the Lord, What am I to do with these people? They are almost ready to stone me. The Lord answered Moses, Walk on ahead of the people. Take with you some of the elders of Israel and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. I will stand there before you by the rock at Horeb. Strike the rock and water will come out of it for the people to drink. So Moses did this in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the place Massa and Meribah because the Israelites quarreled and because they tested the Lord saying, Is the Lord among us or not? This is the word of the Lord. Well, good evening, everybody. Uh, my name is Phil. I'm one of the ministers on the staff here. If it's your first time here, it's great to have you with us. You should have a, an outline on the back of your sheet for taking notes. It'll let you know uh, where we are in the sermon. But if you keep the Bible open, we're going to work through this passage together now. I'm just going to pray and then we'll do that. Our Father God, we pray that you would teach us to trust you. Our Father God, we pray that as we look at your word together now, that you would help us to develop a deep and confident trust that you are God, you will meet our needs, and that you are utterly trustworthy for all that we will have in this life. Amen. Okay, why should you bother paying attention for the next 30 32 minutes. Uh, why should you bother? Why should uh, this sermon get your attention rather than whatever's on your smartphone, your latest game? I won't embarrass myself by saying Angry Birds or something that's probably a little bit old-fashioned. Anyway, um, why, should you give, why should you give this passage your attention? Put simply, the reason is this. As the, the writers of the New Testament looked with fresh eyes after the coming of Jesus Christ at the Old Testament, they realized that while all Scripture is God-breathed, And all scripture is necessary. Some parts of scripture are utterly crucial for you and for me. And the truth is that uh, this passage is picked up in a ton of places in the New Testament. It's either quoted or alluded to or referred to or picked up on by writers of the New Testament. And the more that the New Testament quotes a chunk of the Old Testament, that ought to be a sign to us that it's increasingly important for us. And this is just full of places you could go in the New Testament. We'll look at a number of them on the way through. But this passage is crucial to you and to me because the New Testament writers, as they looked back, recognized that this passage teaches things that we've got to get our heads around if we're to keep going as Christians. So the, uh, the earlier reading that we had from 1 Corinthians 10 is critical for us. In it, we learn that the basic way that you and I are to view life in this world, if we follow the Lord Jesus Christ, is that we are like the Israelites in the desert. 
To follow Jesus is to be on a journey. But more than that, it's to be on a journey in a desert. To use the the old words, we're sojourners, we're pilgrims in this world. And if we do not understand that we're merely passing through, that God does not intend us to find our home here, that God does not intend us to have all that we want, our dreams all fulfilled here, if we don't get that clear in our heads, then we'll end up disappointed with God. We'll end up grumbling. We'll end up tempted to give up. A number of years ago, um, quite a number of years ago, when I was 14, uh, did the Duke of Edinburgh Award Scheme expedition. Who here was, you know, a number of people. It was a sort of rite of passage as a British teenager. And uh, one of the things you have to do is an expedition. And the, the one we did was, it was a four-day expedition in the Welsh mountains, the Brecon Beacons. It was meant to test us against the, the elements of, of Wales. They train the SAS on the Brecon Beacons. Slightly different from what we were doing. But there we go. And uh, we were there in Easter time. And the first three days of our four-day expedition, beautiful blue skies, glorious sunshine. We had more sunshine in those four days than Wales gets in four years, usually. I kid you not, you've been there on holiday, you know what I mean. It was unbelievable. We were told to prepare for rain, we were told it would be hard to navigate in low visibility, you could see for miles, everything was a doddle. So on the last night, we, you know, everything just went to pot, we stopped doing everything we were meant to do, we left all our kit lying around outside, had a big bonfire, went to bed far too late. We woke up the next morning and there was gale force winds, horizontal sleets that gave way to rain and zero visibility in a thick cloud. And it was a disaster, we were soaked to the skin in seconds, all our kit was lying around outside anyway. We were freezing cold. We were completely unprepared for the day. And the truth is that um, after about six hours, we got completely lost and they had to call out mountain rescue for, um, for, <laughs> for three of our groups. It was a shambles. The problem was not that we weren't prepared. We'd been told time and again, you need your waterproofs. You need to be really careful with your kit. And you need to work really hard on your um, your orienteering skills because it's hard to work out where you are in the mountains if you lose your place on the map. The problem was that we got used to something exceptional. We thought it was normal. And so when normality kicked in, we just gave up. We just weren't ready. And God does not want you to give up. He wants you to learn from Exodus what life is normally like. So that when normal life kicks in, you don't find yourself just grumbling against God, disappointed, wondering what on earth happened, and getting lost and giving up. What we'll see here is that as we journey through this world, the desert, on our way to the paradise kingdom, God can be relied on to provide all that we need to get there safely, but he won't necessarily give us all the luxuries that we want, that we convince ourselves that we need. See, God doesn't want us to get too comfy and settle in this world. He wants us to keep moving because this is not what it's all about. As good as this world is, frankly, if this is the best God has to offer, most of us would probably want our money back at some point. It's not. God wants us to keep moving. He's got something much better for us. And so he doesn't want us to get too comfy here. What we'll learn is, um, in terms of this passage, God can be guaranteed to provide us with manna, but don't expect quail, which won't make 
any sense at all until we look at this passage, which is what we're going to do now. So firstly, uh, we'll see God provides water for the thirsty. That's the first thing we see is God provides water for the thirsty. So if you um, turn back with me to page 73, and we're at the end of chapter 15, verse 22. Then Moses led the Israel from the Red Sea and they went into the desert of Shur. For three days they travelled in the desert without finding water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink its water because it was bitter. That's why the place is called Marah. So the people grumbled against Moses saying, what are we to drink? Then Moses cried to the Lord and the Lord showed him a piece of wood. He threw it into the water and the water became sweet. So they're heading uh, away from the Red Sea now towards Sinai, towards an encounter with God. But they're in a desert and for three days they don't find any water. And after three days they grumble against God, which is highly understandable when you think about it. I mean, it's not as if God has shown them that he can provide for them. And it's certainly not the case that God has shown that he's got any sort of control over water in the recent history of Israel. It's appalling. How quickly they forget. They grumble. They grumble. And what does God do? Well, he graciously provides. He gives them the water they need. Okay, uh, what is this for us? Um, How does the New Testament use this passage? As the writers of the New Testament tell us in 1 Corinthians 10, we're like the Israelites. What does it mean to be like the Israelites trusting God for water? Well, we're not on a physical trek. We're on a spiritual journey towards God's heavenly kingdom. And both John chapter 4 and John chapter 7 pick up on this image of water. We're just going to look briefly at John 7 as we see Jesus is the living water. If you want to turn to page 1072, you'll need to have warm fingers tonight. Page 1072. Actually, the very top of 1073. So we'll start at verse 37. On the last and greatest day of the feast, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, streams of living water will flow from within him. By this he meant the Spirit, whom those who believe in him were later to receive. Jesus is the living water. In other words, he quenches our soul's thirst for God as he provides us with the Holy Spirit. In the desert, the Israelites had uh, God with them in a cloud and fiery pillar. We have God in us by his Holy Spirit. God designed us to need a relationship with him. And it is so fundamental to us that the image that the Bible uses is that it is like our need of water. And if you've ever been really thirsty, not it's been a couple of hours since I had a drink thirsty, but it's been a day since I had a drink thirsty. Then you'll know what the Bible means when it says God is our living water. Jesus is who our souls was designed to find satisfaction in. And we need him as much as the Israelites needed water in the wilderness. We need him in us by his Holy Spirit, giving us that relationship and enabling and empowering us to keep going in the desert. Fundamental to being a human is thirst, spiritual thirst, and Jesus is living water. Okay, so uh, Jesus is living water. Secondly, God provides food for the hungry. It's the second thing we see um, as we turn into chapter 16. 
We're not going to go through this chapter in massive detail. What we do is just pick out some of the themes and work out then what it means for us. Uh, But do you see again what we saw at the Red Sea last week? Hardships make the Israelites long for life back in Egypt. So look at uh, verse 2, back in Exodus. So we're back on page uh, 73, chapter 16. And then over the page under verse 2. In the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The Israelites said to them, if only we died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. We sat round pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted. But you've brought us out into the desert to starve this entire assembly to death. Then the Lord said to Moses, I will rain down bread from heaven for you. Extraordinary. A few weeks roughing it in the desert. And suddenly they look back and Egypt's very different. I mean, all we did in Egypt was we just sat round Michelin star food. We just all we had to do all day was, you know, sit round a pot of food. That was basically what life was, which is why we were crying out for salvation from our slavery. Tough journey. We forget what was going on before. It's amazing how life on a rough journey can make you forget how awful slavery was before. And it's the same for you and me so often. And so the Israelites do what we do. They grumble. And boy, do they grumble. The most frequently used verb in this whole chapter, grumble. Grumble, grumble, grumble. Ten times they grumble. And when they grumble against Moses, as we see, they're really grumbling against God. And you can see at the heart of the section, really, from the, from the repetition and the structure. Look at 16 verse 6. So Moses and Aaron said to all the Israelites, in the evening you will know that it was the Lord who brought you out of Egypt. And then look and see how verse 12 matches it. I've heard the grumbling of the Israelites. Tell them at twilight you will eat meat and in the morning you will be filled with bread. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God. So revelation of God, revelation of God between them. Six times in the verses 7 to 11, they grumble, 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 grumble. But that's just the context for the central verse, which brings out this revelation of God again. Verse 8. Look at the second half of verse 8. Moses uh, also said, You will know that it was the Lord when he gives you meat to eat in the evening and all the bread you want in the morning, because he has heard your grumbling against him. God is revealing himself to them. You will know that he is the Lord. In verse 10, we, uh, in the reading, you'll probably remember, the, the glory of the Lord appears as a cloud in the wilderness. But God is not just known in sort of ethereal, uh, nebulous experiences. He is the God of the burning bush who said, I will be who I will be. He is the God who reveals himself by what he says and what he does. And here he is, I am the God who will give you bread and water in the wilderness. That's who I am. He's known as the God who provides meat and bread where there is none. So firstly, he provides meat for his grumbling people. Which is basically his way of saying, look, life in the wilderness is hard, but you need to know I'm the sort of God who can spread out a feast of rich meat even here in the desert, in the sand. Now you lot live in London, so I imagine pretty much every time you go out for breakfast, it's quail's eggs. But quail are a serious delicacy here. This is a really tasty treat. And the point in verse 13, that evening quail came and covered the camp and in the morning there was a layer of dew around the camp. The point of the quail covering the camp is God can lay on a feast even in the wilderness. But secondly, carry on in verse 13 to 14, when the dew was gone, thin flakes like frost on the ground appeared on the desert floor. 
God can also feed his people with bread. Well, it's not actually bread, but because it's their staple, their sort of daily necessity, their version of rice or bread, it gets called bread in the Bible. Uh, Look at verse 31. The people of Israel, Israel called the bread manna. It was white like coriander seed and tasted like wafers made with honey. Literally, manna means what is it? And for once, uh, although there's a big cultural gap between us and the Israelites, we can get what's going on because it's, it fits closely with stuff we know. It's called Watsits, and it's like Frosties. There you go. It is. That's what the Bible says. It is exactly like Frosties, sort of honey-covered flakes, and they're called Watsits by the Israelites. It's just there in the Bible. Uh, okay, key features of the manna. Uh, firstly, God provides them every day. Until they reach the end of the journey. Verse 18. Um, so it's not verse 18. And they last uh, every day as much as they need. If you look in verse 18. He tells. Uh, they, when they measured it by the omer. He who gathered much did not have too much. He who gathered little did not have too little. God provided everything they needed. And then verse 35. The Israelites ate manna for 40 years. Until they came to a land that was settled. They ate manna until they reached the edge. The border of Canaan. In other words, it stops when they don't need it any longer. That's the first thing. God provides it every day in the desert. Secondly, God teaches his people to trust him through it. That's why he does it. A couple of things. They're not allowed to store it overnight. They've got to gather it fresh each day. And if they keep it overnight, it goes off. Why is that? Verse 19 to 20. Uh, Look down. Then Moses said to the Israelites, and no one is to keep any of it until the morning. However, some of them paid no attention. They kept part of it till the morning, but it was full of maggots and began to smell. So Moses was angry. Why, why make it so it goes off if you keep it overnight? So they will learn to trust God to provide every day. Their security for tomorrow is not a full fridge. It is a reliable God. And so it's a daily provision. It's not like the sort of weekly Tesco direct delivery coming to them. Every day they have to pray and every day God will provide. Verse 22, it gets, um, you can see this point because of what, how it's different on the Sabbath. Verse 22, on the sixth day they gathered twice as much, two omers for each person, and the leaders of the community came and reported this to Moses. He said to them, this is what the Lord commanded. Tomorrow is to be a day of rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. So bake what you want to bake, boil what you want to boil, save whatever is left, and keep it to the morning. So they saved it until morning as Moses commanded and it did not stink or get maggots. Eat it today, Moses said, because today is a Sabbath. You will not find any of it on the ground today. See, God works miraculously to provide bread. He works miraculously to rot the bread overnight and he works miraculously to ensure that on the Sabbath none appears and the stuff that's stored doesn't rot. The issue is trust. I mean, if you know that every morning, Monday to Friday, Sunday to Friday, there is manna on the ground, and that if you keep it overnight, it will rot, why on earth, on Friday night, would you gather double and keep it overnight? Why would you do that? If every other day when you've done that, it's rotted, and every other morning it appears, you would only do that if you trust what God has said. God is building and shaping his people He is revealing himself to them as a God they can trust in and rely on every day for what they most need. He will keep them alive. 
Now verses 32 to 34 rather re-emphasize what was said about God revealing himself in verses 6, 8 and 12. That he is a God who faithfully provides. Look at verse 32. Moses said, this is what the Lord has commanded. Take an omer of manna and keep it for the generations to come so they can see the bread I gave you to eat in the desert when I brought you out of Egypt. So Moses said to Aaron, take a jar and put an omer of manna in it. Then place it before the Lord to be kept for the generations to come. As the Lord commanded Moses, Aaron put the manna in front of the testimony that it might be kept. It goes in a jar so that future generations of Israelites, Israelites who've got fields and crops that they can store up so that they would know that the God they trust in is a God who can provide as well in the desert as in a fertile land. So that they will know their ultimate security, their ultimate provision is not the rains of this year and sensible agricultural skills. It is the God in heaven who loves them and who can provide wherever they are. Who can produce bread on sand for them if he needs to. Okay, what does it mean for us now? I guess instinctively, we probably all know what I'm going to say is not going to affect your monthly food bill. That is not where this passage is going to take us. Our manner is different because our journey is different. We're not physically trekking to the promised land. We are spiritually journeying through this world on our way to God's paradise kingdom. And we will reach it when we die or Jesus returns. It's not a physical journey. But what we learn in John 6, verses 49 to 51. So one page earlier from where we were before. John 6, page 1071. Page 1071, John 6. We learn that Jesus, just as he was the water, Jesus is the living bread as well. John 6. Verse 49. Shall we start at 48? I am the bread of life. Your forefathers ate manna in the desert, yet they died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which a man may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. What on earth does Jesus mean? Well, part of it, actually the heart of it, is to trust in him, in his death for our forgiveness. Uh, The symbolism of the Lord's Supper really helps us with that. How do we remember Jesus' death as Christians? By eating bread and drinking wine. It is Jesus who is our bread. He is our forgiveness. His death pays for our sins. We'll see more of that in chapter 17. In John 6, though, uh, remember how this happens. Uh, Jesus leads the people into the wilderness like Moses. In John 6, he teaches them, feeding them with his word. In John 6, he then feeds them miraculously, 5,000 men alone, with five loaves and two fishes, just as Moses, through God, fed them in the wilderness. And then Jesus says, I am the living bread. He is the one who provides for us in the wilderness of this world. He is the one who will ensure you make it safely to God's paradise kingdom. He is the one who will ensure that you do not give up or fall away. Okay, what does that actually mean in practical terms? In part, I think it does simply mean trust Jesus daily for what you need. Not just the spiritual stuff, but everything. 
He is our provision in the wilderness of this world. There's a reason in the Lord's Prayer that he encourages us to pray, give us this day our daily bread. Give us what we need, God. Come to me, God says, because I have what you need and I will give it to you. And I think actually for those of us who've been Christians a while, the hard thing here is the daily bit. It's hard just to... God, why can't you just... Why do I have to keep asking every day? Partly we're just competent people here in London with our education and our jobs. We're used to doing everything else. We're used to planning for the future. And we don't like the idea. We find it, it just doesn't feel natural to us to trust God each day. We like to be able to look ahead and have a pension plan. It just doesn't feel right to turn to him every day. And many of us, we've got problems that we've been living with for a long, long time. Needs that we feel deeply and desperately. And frankly, if I were to ask you, can you imagine this not changing and you still trusting Jesus in 20 years time if this thing about your life hasn't changed? I can't go 20 years like this. I can't. And God says, you don't have to. Have I given you enough grace for today? Tomorrow morning, my mercies will be fresh every morning. Tomorrow morning, pray, and tomorrow morning I will provide. And we don't like that. We think, yeah, but, but what if it goes on like this for years? Pray tomorrow, and I'll provide for tomorrow. It's the way it is with God. He's enormously frustrating. But he's enormously good, and he knows what's best for us. And he's teaching us to trust him. It is as we have to turn to him each day, that we learn that he always seems to provide what we need for today and therefore I can trust him for tomorrow. It means trusting Jesus for everything. That's the first thing. I think it also means feeding on his word. Preachers always say read the Bible more. Actually, there's a good reason for saying that. Firstly, John 1, Jesus is described as the word of God. And so if we're to feed on Jesus the living bread, well... If I want to feed on the real Jesus, not the Jesus of my imagination, but the real Jesus, then I meet him where? In his word. There's just no getting around that. And it doesn't matter how long you've been a Christian. You need daily to be digging into his word. Think of any relationship with someone you've known a long time. You know, some people have been Christians here 20, 30, 40 years. People have been, uh, if you've got a husband, wife, good friend, brother, sister, parents, you can have known them for so long you can finish their sentences. You know all their likes and dislikes, which is useful when you want to wind them up. You, uh, you know everything about them pretty much. You know, you can think about them and, and you've got a pretty accurate thought of what they're like, but your relationship with them doesn't grow if you just think about them, remember them. Your relationship only grows when you listen to them afresh when you engage with them. And that's the same with Jesus. Our relationship with him doesn't grow when we just think about the things we think we know about him. It grows as we meet him, as he speaks to us in his word. When uh, the devil tempts Jesus to make miraculous bread in the wilderness, he quotes Deuteronomy 8 in a very manner-like way and says, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And just as the Israelites needed manna daily in the wilderness, just as you and I need to eat daily physical food, most Christians who keep going for more than 10, 20 years say that they need to feed on God's word daily. 
Don't think you're an exception. Invest in your relationship with Jesus daily. Feed on him the living bread. Okay, finally then, uh, chapter 17. And here we see something slightly different. You think, okay, I remember chapter 17. It's another bit about water. But actually, I think what's going on here is God provides a substitute for the guilty. Let me show you why. There's a nice pattern, water, bread, water. But there is more going on here. And the Apostle Paul realized this, which is why he wrote what he wrote in 1 Corinthians 10. He saw that God was providing more than just water for thirsty people. There's a hint, there's a shadow in these verses of the very heart of Jesus' ministry. Uh, Look back firstly to to 1526, Exodus 1526 on uh, page 73. The Lord made a decree, verse 26, he said, If you listen carefully to the voice of the Lord your God and do what is right in his eyes, if you pay attention to his commands and keep all his decrees... I will not bring on you any of the diseases I brought on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord who heals you. Now, it's interesting. Actually, up to this point in Exodus, all the emphasis on obedience has really been about Pharaoh. Will Pharaoh obey the voice of God? No. But God is not racist. God does not show favoritism. The Israelites cannot be his people and have the same attitude to his word that Pharaoh had. If they do, if they reject his word, if they disobey him, then they will suffer the same judgment the Egyptians came under. What's the very next thing that happens after 1526? They grumble, chapter 16. We need to realize here that the grumbling is not like uh, in the Psalms when someone under terrible suffering turns to God and says, Why God, why are you letting this happen? It's not like in Job where where Job brings his complaint before God and says, God, this is just too much. I can't bear this. What are you doing? This is a sinful refusal to trust God to do what he's promised to do in spite of enormous, unmistakable, miraculous provision day after day for the previous year. And it gets worse in chapter 17. Uh, The verses um, that talk about quarrelling and testing in 17, it's a more serious word really actually than grumbling. It's It's a rejection of God. It's a total denial of his authority. Let's look at the verses together. The whole Israelite community set out from the desert of sin, traveling from place to place as the Lord commanded. They camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. So they quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. Moses replied, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you put the Lord to the test? But the people were thirsty for water there and they grumbled against Moses. They said, why did you bring us up out of Egypt and make us and our children and livestock die of thirst? Then Moses cried out to the Lord, what am I to do with these people? They're almost ready to stone me. What am I to do? It's not, I don't know how to provide water. Moses knows full well God can do that. We saw that in chapter 15. The question is, God, how on earth am I supposed to lead this rebellious people? Even when in chapter 16 you provided manna miraculously, they went out when I told them not to go out on the Sabbath. They stored up double when I told them not to store up double during the week. They are so rebellious. How on earth can I stop them just being destroyed by your wrath? How am I supposed to lead this people, God? It's impossible. 
They're going to be judged and destroyed by you. There's no way to stop it. So what does God tell him to do? Verse 5, the Lord answered Moses, walk on ahead of the people. Take with you some of the elders of Israel and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. Take the staff, the symbol of justice, the rod that was used to punish, the rod that brought the plagues down on Egypt, the rod that brought the Red Sea down on the Egyptian army. Take that rod and verse 6, I will stand before you by the rock at Horeb, strike the rock and water will come out of it for the people to drink. So Moses did this in the sight of the leaders of Israel. And he called the place Massah and Meribah because the Israelites quarreled. And because they tested the Lord saying, is the Lord among us or not? What on earth is going on here? What is going on is that someone is indeed being struck. Someone is indeed being punished for the wicked grumbling and the disobedience of the Israelites. Well, not someone so much as a rock, which seems a bit odd. I mean, how can, you know, Israelite A has been wicked, so the rock gets kicked. I mean, it just, what's going, that just seems ridiculous. But the rock is a sign, a symbol pointing towards something greater. Do you remember uh, 1 Corinthians 10.4? For they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. Christ Jesus is the rock that was struck. Now it's interesting. Uh, I think John's Gospel is probably the bit of the, the New Testament book that most often and most fully sort of picks up on Exodus and shows how Jesus fulfills uh, the book of Exodus. And we've already seen in John 6 and 7 the, the living bread and the living water. But there's a detail that John includes that none of the other gospel writers includes when he gets to his eyewitness account of what happens as Jesus dies on the cross. Listen again to uh, Exodus 17 verse 6 firstly. Exodus 17 6. I will stand before you and by the rock at Horeb strike the rock and water will come out of it for the people to drink. Strike the rock and water will come out. John 19.34, as Jesus dies. When they came to Jesus and found he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. The rock was struck and the water flowed. And Christ was the rock. How will God provide you with the forgiveness you need if you're like me? How will he uh, keep providing for and blessing us in this journey that we have through the wilderness? How will he enable us to persevere when we grumble like the Israelites? When I quarrel with what he does, when I question his decisions, when I, when I doubt that he's good enough to provide what I really need, when I doubt that he, he knows me well enough or cares deeply enough to really give the things that I desperately need if I'm to live in this world. When I refuse to trust God in spite of the fact that he gave up his own son for me in salvation. How on earth, how on earth is God going to be able to keep a person like me and live with me and not destroy me? How can God keep being our God when we treat him like the Israelites do? Because with the rod of his justice he has struck his son in our place. 
and living water has flowed out to us. God the judge took the punishment himself and life has come out to you and to me because of that. Okay, step back in just the last minute. What big lessons do we learn? Amid all the details, what is there here for us to cling to? I think the big phrase that I would uh, encourage you to keep in your head is that God can provide quail. God can be guaranteed to provide manna. What do I mean? I mean, don't expect this world to be like the world to come. Don't expect quail here. Actually, the truth is, most of us who've been following Jesus for a while have stories of how God has given us abundantly more than all we could ask or imagine at various points. But don't expect this life to get everything you want. You'll get far more than you could have ever imagined in paradise in the world to come. But don't expect it now. We're in the wilderness. This world is not that world. One day you'll have all the quail you could ever want. But don't expect it now. Rejoice when God gives you abundantly more than he's promised. But the danger is that we start to expect that as the norm. We start to demand that. God, you're only good if you keep giving me this. If having given me this, you now give me that. If you give me what you gave her or him. This world is not our home. We're pilgrims. And we must not try and make it our home, spending all our money and time on making things more comfortable. We're traveling. We want to travel light. This is not the source of our hope. This is not the place of our desire. But do expect manna. Do expect God to provide everything we need. In Philippians 4.19, wonderful verse, uh, Paul says, My God is able to meet all my needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. Jesus is our living water who pours out the Holy Spirit into our hearts. Jesus is the living bread sustaining us through each day in this world by his word. Jesus is the rock who was struck in our place so that we might not be judged but might be blessed and forgiven. So God may only promise bread but his bread is very, very good. I don't know if you've noticed the rule about holidays. The, um, the better the holiday, the worse the journey. So if you've ever been on a really nice holiday, it's almost always from London Luton Airport. And it's uh, always a day when there's a train strike, so it's a taxi at 3.30 in the morning. <laughs> but if you've ever been on one of those proper Kowoni brochure holidays, I mean a real proper pucker holiday, if you've ever been on one of those, you'll know that you could go to the airport and the departure lounge could be full of screaming kids, no space even to sit down. Who cares? It could be hosing with rain on the way to the train. The taxi driver could smell and be really annoying and just drive like an idiot. Who cares? The plane could be overcrowded. They always are. The seats could be even shorter than they usually are. Who cares? It could be standing up. Don't need any of those things to be great. Who cares about the seats in the departure lounge? Who cares how comfortable the flight is? I'm going to paradise for two weeks. The sort of place they take pictures of. There are pina coladas waiting for me when I check in. It is warm in the water. I do not have to stick a toe in first. No wetsuits required. Who cares whether I'm sat next to a screaming baby all flight? Who cares? It's only a short flight. What do I need? All I need is my plane ticket. That's all I really need. I don't need anything else. 
I can put up with almost anything because I'm going to paradise. Don't expect quail in the wilderness, but do expect manna. And more than that, expect that what God has planned for you in the future, expect that what God has for you in paradise is so good. That if you were able to get God to be your genie for this life, to do everything you wanted, give you everything you wanted, it would be rubbish compared with what God will give you in the life to come. And tomorrow morning he will give you what you need to endure another day in the wilderness on the way there. Let's pray. Our Father God, we thank you that one day you will stop providing us with everything we need for the journey. One day you will stop doing that because one day the journey will be over and we will be with you in paradise. In the meantime, Father, would you help us to trust you that you know what we need and you give all that we need and very often more. Help us, Father, to to keep praying to you, to keep trusting in your provision. And Father, we thank you that we know that you will get us safely there. Amen.